0: My fellow investors, welcome back to the Newcomer Investor channel, where you talk about stocks, share insights, and debate. We have a lot to talk about today. We have a collapsing bank. We have a wider market panic with lots of stocks falling left and right. And we have one of my stocks that fell 24% in a single day. Now, you know what that means. All of this makes for very juicy content. So if you don't own all these stocks that are struggling, you're going to have a great time today. (laughs) And of course, remember, nothing I say here is financial advice. It is all entertainment purposes only. Now, starting with our first topic, if you live within the proximity of planet Earth, then you've probably heard of Silicon Valley Bank. It's been all over the news this week, and for good reason. It is America's 16th largest bank and has collapsed in the space of 48 hours. Now, there are implications not only on this bank, but on the wider economy, because many people now are saying that this will trigger bank runs on the entire financial sector. So that could trigger lots of uncertainty and lots of problems for everyone else, literally. Now, to understand this issue better, let's take a step back and look at what is Silicon Valley Bank and how banks even function. Silicon Valley Bank was founded in 1983 in California, and it basically became the bank for the tech sector and for people who financed it. They had roughly $200 billion in assets at the time of failure, which is not as much as some of the largest banks like JPMorgan Chase, but it is still the largest bank to fail since the Great Recession. Now to understand this better, let's break down how banks work in general. So banks are pretty diversified, but really the, let's say the main business model in general is customers go to their local bank. They deposit their money, let's say $10,000 in your savings account and then they go about their day. And what the bank does is they actually take that money and they lend it out to other people and they make profit from the interest that the people pay back. So I could put 100K in my bank account and then the bank will lend that 100K to someone else for their mortgage and the bank makes a profit from the interest. So as long as not everyone tries to get their money back at the same time. There's actually no issue. As part of our banking regulations that are updated every few years, I mean, the last round of updates happened after the great financial crisis in 2008. Generally, banks need to have a minimum level of cash in their balance. And that level of cash has to be well in excess of the normal rates of people trying to withdraw money in the case of emergencies or bank runs, as we call them. Now, why did Silicon Valley still face an issue with their cash availability? Okay, now you're probably asking me, well, if we have these regulations, what went wrong? How did they still not work? Well, I would say, and I guess, you know, this is in flux. Everyone's looking at it now and trying to figure out what happened. But from what I've seen right now, it seems like inadequate risk management and a combination of really pure bad luck. We're gonna elaborate on this, getting a little bit technical, but you'll see that it all makes sense. We are faced with a global inflationary crisis. Literally every country is trying to get inflation down. And the way to do that is the central bank in each country increases interest rates. Now, every now and then I'm going about my day just talking with people and sometimes people will say, well, you know, I don't care about all this economic stuff. It's all over my head. I don't understand it. No, no, no. You should care about interest rates because that impacts everybody. Higher interest rates are not just an abstract concept. A higher interest rate means the cost of borrowing is now higher. I'm too young and poor to have a mortgage, but for some of my listeners who are a little older than me and wealthier than me, you probably have a mortgage. If you were lucky enough to get a fixed rate one, then you're laughing right now. But if you were unlucky enough to get a variable rate one, which generally were uh, cheaper at the time of low interest rates, now you're probably having a hard time because your payments doubled in the space of six months. That's insane, right? So as interest rates go up, It deters economic activity, but it impacts a lot of people and a lot of businesses. Okay, now we've established that interest rates became high. Let's go back into Silicon Valley Bank, what they did and what happened. Silicon Valley Bank's client base is not like the typical bank. Silicon Valley, literally, their whole brand was about being the bank for the tech sector. A lot of startups, a lot of venture capital. Now, you know that shine you get when you're like, I work in tech. It's cool, right? No disrespect to my tech friends, but the problem is it is no longer cool right now because a lot of these high-flying tech companies, I'm talking tech companies from the ARK fund of Cathie Wood, a lot of these companies were doing great in 2020, but now are crashing back down to earth because again, a lot of tech is massive revenue growth, but not a lot of profit growth. They're losing money. And that's easy in a time of low interest rates because you can borrow for cheap, for next to nothing. But when you have high interest rates, that triggers those companies to realize they have to operate efficiently. And unfortunately, that meant a lot of layoffs, as we've seen in the news, and more importantly, getting your money back. The money that they would put in their banks, they needed it back now to start paying their employees or to start funding whatever they were doing, right? When companies face times of hardship, they have to dip into their savings. That happens all the time. And unfortunately, all of them in this tech sector, all these startups, are doing it right now. Now, to compound the issue, it could have been okay. But the problem is, this bank was invested in a lot of long-dated bonds. Now, let's get technical again and explain how interest rates impact bonds. When interest rates go up, this makes the price of existing bonds Go down. Let's make up an easy example so you can understand. Let's say that in 2020, when interest rates were low, I decide to lend you $100 with a 2% interest. So you're going to give me back my $100 and my 2%. So your cost of borrowing is 2%, which is a pretty good deal. Now, let's say that we agree this, but you're going to pay this back in 2040. So it's a long time between uh, then and now. And now that we are in a high interest rate environment, someone else comes up, and says, yeah, I'll lend $100 uh, for a 6% interest. Now, all of a sudden, my $100 for a 2% interest is not attractive for creditors. Therefore, the price of my bond, the price of getting someone to agree to lend this 100 for a 2% return is going to go down because no one wants to do that when there are so much better alternatives. That is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. They got locked in a lot of long-dated bonds, Um, With low interest rates and now they have to sell these bonds at a loss because they need the money right now because they're in a cash crunch So they tried to do that They tried to sell some of their stock and everything just completely collapsed and that is basically what happened to Silicon Valley Bank now What are the implications of that? I honestly don't know. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen I know that people's money is insured up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars but the problem is most of the money uh, parked in those banks like the amounts that companies or people put in there was much more than that So I'm actually not sure if those people will be bailed out or if they'll just lose the money But it's not looking very good. Now the natural follow-up question to all of this is Should I stay invested in bank stocks or should I sell them or and whatnot? Uh, I mean, hey, this is not financial advice I myself hold three bank stocks. These are Scotiabank, TD Bank, and EQB Inc. I am holding on to all of them, and I'm not overly concerned about them. The reason being, they are diversified. At least the first two. I'm going to have to have a, a closer look at EQB because it is the smallest of the three. But from the available data that I have reviewed so far... I don't believe that these three banks will suffer the same fate as Silicon Valley because, again, this was a very specialized bank that uh, tried to appeal to a very specific type of industry and and person all at the same time that all had the same issue, right? So uh, these other banks that I hold are not really like that. So I think we'll be fine here. I believe they'll continue to be profitable and do well, but I will be keeping a closer eye on them. That's for sure. Now to give you an update on what I did with my portfolio regarding banks, I actually for the first time in three years have purchased more of TD. The reason being, Scotiabank has been my largest bank holding for a while and it still is, but I wanted to equalize my positions a little bit more. I wanted to have that good South American exposure with Scotiabank and more American exposure with TD and again EQB is more Canadian. I wanted to have a nice little balance. So increasing that TD position just felt right at the time, you know, it's fallen in value. It is a strong bank. It pays a growing dividend and it's just a high quality franchise that I believe has the cash, the experience, and uh, just is resilient enough to get through this market cycle. Regarding this little market meltdown that we're experiencing. If you've known me for more than a day, you know, I am optimistic. In general about humanity I think we'll keep growing we're gonna have a lot of bumps along the way but I'm really not that concerned in fact I do think some of the best times to buy are when we have a meltdown because that is when you get big disconnects between the price and the value of the business I've been accused of being a little complacent sometimes and I'm fine if you believe that but I know I've made some of my best gains during COVID when everything crashed 30% and I will continue to buy in times of extreme fear. Uh, For me personally, I think that's the best time to buy, especially again because I have a very long-term horizon. The most important thing to do in my opinion is to make sure that when you do buy in times of extreme fear that you buy very high quality companies that will survive. So again, I'm mentioning companies like TD, companies like Brookfield Corporation, uh, companies like Apple, Microsoft, you know what I mean? Like even if we get big recessions and all all that stuff, those companies, I believe, will still be around and will rise from the ashes once again uh, when, you know, everything starts to catch up again and people start being optimistic again. Again, this is not financial advice, but I think buying when everything's low is better than buying when everything's great. And I will continue to do that. Now, I know I've been saying this is not financial advice, but here... I am actually going to give you advice for anyone who may be looking for some. If you are concerned about not picking necessarily the right stock, like you're scared maybe that the company you pick will be one that fails, I would suggest buying the index. If you buy the S&P 500, all of it, you have America's 500 best companies. And some of them will fail at some point and some of them will be higher than others, but at least you own everything so you're not going to lose all your money. For myself, I love buying the index. I also like this other ETF called SCHD, which holds 100 companies. These are all companies that pay a growing American dividend. You know, if you have ETFs like that, I can't guarantee that you'll get rich or anything, but I I can almost guarantee that you're not going to go to zero. Okay, now for our final topic today, and I know a lot of people rubbing their hands and happy to say, I told you so, but it's fine. You know, we all learn together. My company, House Systems reported earnings. They fell 24%. Now, this is a company a lot of people love and were talking up for the last five, six years. And then uh, since the start of COVID started doing really poorly and people just started uh, shitting on it, basically. But okay, what is up with House? What is it? What happened? NJAS Systems is a software tech company, they grow primarily by acquisitions, so they buy other little companies, and that increases their revenues and their uh, net income, and what happened really is they just haven't made any meaningful acquisitions in a while, it's been like two years or so, that they've been growing their cash pile, and they just haven't been able to buy anything that they felt was compelling. Now, that is the main reason that people are upset because their revenue grew so much at the start of COVID because they had a lot of Zoom-like video stuff going on uh, that they were able to sell. But now with the return to the office, um, they've been growing less of that revenue. So revenue has been falling. And as a result, you know, people are saying now this is the end of this company. So I don't think things are that terrible. And I'll give you my reasoning. Firstly... Their cash pile is there. It's been growing. They're at $250 million. That is not little. That is more than what they usually have. So at the time that they do find the right company to make an acquisition, they will be able to do so. They have that flexibility. Second, they have no debt. My friends, a tech company with no debt, that is amazing. That is fantastic. And that is underrated. And again, I continue to believe, especially now in times of higher interest rates, this is a huge advantage. Um, and next, another part that people, it seems that have flown over everyone's head, but they did mention if you read the earnings transcript, their share of recurring revenue has increased. Now, if you like analyzing tech and software companies, you know that recurring revenue is king. That is everything to do with these, you know, subscription type of services when a company hires you for a while to just to keep selling your software and, and it just every month for every year or whatever, they just have to pay you the more sticky products you create and sell, the better. Part of the reason for Eng House's lumpy earnings isn't only the acquisitions, but it's also that they had a lot of project based revenue where they were hired for one large thing and then, you know, they get paid a lump sum at the time and then it's over. Kind of like a, a construction company. But. Like I said, they are increasing their share of recurring revenue and that's a great thing. So now you'd be asking me, what am I doing with Enghouse Systems? Well, firstly, my allocation to this company is pretty small. I haven't checked in a while, but it's like 1% of my portfolio, something like that. So it's really not that much. Uh, My average price is around $45. So I am down now, but that's fine. Like I'm holding, uh, not buying anymore at this time, but I'm comfortable holding. And another thing I should have mentioned, they have increased the dividend 18 percent and again that is because they couldn't find uses for the cash so they just want to reward shareholders more so that is my largest dividend increase year to date and this is their um i think it's their 12th year now that they increased the dividend double digit so i mean can't complain this is not the hot pile of garbage that a lot of people online are saying they did not make a meaningful acquisition but they will at some point and for now revenue fell a little bit but it stabilized I'm comfortable holding. Anyway, my friends, thank you so much for listening to the Newcomer Investor channel. Uh, once again, you know, feel free to tweet me a comment if you think I'm wrong about stuff. No worries. The point of this uh, channel is to debate. Please make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Give me a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Music, and I look forward to connecting again with you soon.